My name is Jocelyn Caspa. I am a witness of the Senkata massacre perpetrated after the Bolivian government of Evo Morales was ousted. This is While We Were Sleeping, the podcast that investigates overlooked cases of state violence and the human stories behind them. And I'm your host, Francesca Emanuele. Jocelyn Caspa, a 27-year-old indigenous Aymara woman from Sencata, Bolivia, made an effort to record this episode's introduction in English. She wanted you to hear in her own voice that she was a witness to a massacre that happened just a few months ago in her hometown. The rest of the interview will be dubbed from its original Spanish by Beth Gilia. Thank you, Beth. Hi, Francesca. It's my pleasure. The Bolivian president, who's been in power for nearly 14 years, has now resigned. Our Kimball Gang tells us more. To resign my position as president. President Morales spoke shortly after the Bolivian military took to the airwaves to call for his resignation. In November of 2019, the indigenous president of Bolivia, Evo Morales, was pressured to resign his democratically elected position by military forces. Ten days later, outside of La Paz in the district of Sencata, a group of protesters attempted to block a number of trucks transporting fuel from the local gas plant to the capital city. The protesters were denouncing what they believed was a coup d'etat. It was November 19th, and Jocelyn was on a bus heading home. The vehicle was about to pass the gas plant where the demonstration was taking place. Suddenly, a contingent of soldiers stopped Jocelyn's bus and forced everyone to get off. Once in the street, the passengers found themselves enveloped in a cloud of tear gas. After that cloud they made with the gas, once the cloud started expanding, people started to cough and the children started to cry. It affected all of us, but there were some women, older women, children, who were going home like I was. Most of us had to get food because here in Sencata, we had almost nothing left. Most of them were with their kids and they had to escape wherever they could. There weren't many places to escape because we were on a main highway. Shortly after, Jocelyn saw the fuel trucks circumnavigate the blockade and continue on their way, but the military stayed. There were a lot of soldiers and four tanks. When I approached the group of people that was there, I found that there had already been a few clashes. I suppose the images have been seen in various places already. 
There were women wearing indigenous dress down on their knees in front of the soldiers. There was a man on the other side of the soldiers. Many of the neighbors said that he was dead and they wanted to move the body. And that was supposedly the reason why the women were on their knees, begging the soldiers to give them the body. In the back, close to where I was, people showed up with small white flags as a symbol of peace. They wanted to recover that person's body. All of a sudden, one of the tanks came towards us, and we all escaped. Everyone ran and ran and ran because we had nothing to defend ourselves against the bullets. If you're in the middle of the highway, where can you hide? I ran just like everybody else. It was at that moment that I saw one of the helicopters. There were two helicopters that had been flying very close to the ground. And one of them launched tear gas. And I know it was tear gas because once they released it, it started to glow. It was metal, and it started to fall. At that point, everything became white again. At this point, we were close to a large hole and there were cliffs. And so the neighbors had made some kind of agreement to jump into the hole and take refuge if the tanks came near us. And that's what we did when the tank came toward us with soldiers coming behind it. One person, an older adult, I would say he was 63 years old, was very brave using his slingshots to launch small rocks into the gas plant, wanting them to hit at least one of the soldiers shooting from within the plant. That's the attitude that a lot of people had because almost everyone here has their slingshots. A lot of people came out to defend themselves with their slingshots. The women who were there, the older women, were the ones who collected the rocks. Covered in the white powder from the tear gas and exhausted from the continuing violent clashes all around her, Jocelyn eventually made her way to the downtown area of Sencata, known as La Estranca. Right when I arrived at La Extranca, I saw a lot of injured people. A few friends who are still studying medicine had to treat those people because we don't have enough health centers or hospitals. The neighbors may have made the soldiers retreat and they had created barricades with the stones that separated the lanes on the highway. At that moment, one person had tried to get close to the soldiers, where there was a fallen wall, and that was when one of the soldiers shot him. The person fell immediately, and that's when the rest of the neighbors reacted, and they ran to where he was. The soldiers started shooting and shooting and shooting. At that point, it was each man for himself. All of this took place over three or four hours. When I started my trip, it was 11 a.m. I arrived at La Extranca and it was close to three in the afternoon. That same afternoon nearby, Jocelyn's father and younger brother also found themselves engulfed in the clashes. Like I mentioned before, we didn't have any more food here in Sencata. There was no meat. 
So my dad and my younger brother wanted to go to La Extranca to get canned goods, sardines. But once they arrived, they saw that things were ugly and they joined the clashes against the military. My younger brother, he's still underage. He tells me how they had already stayed in place and the tank that was going back and forth between the plant and La Extranca would corner them and then come back and corner them again. And there was a young person with the courage that any young person would have. He got close to the soldiers and tried to throw a rock at them. And before the young man could throw the rock, he falls over. My brother tells me that the guy was close to him and that he tried to throw the rock, but that he was hit with a bullet. Then my father and brother came towards my house and we found each other there. We were all healthy and safe and we decided to go back. It was me, my father, my brother, and my cousin who lives next door. Once we arrived at La Extranca, it turned out that the military had cornered all of the community members. They had made a huge cord so that no one could enter or leave. It was like they locked them into Sencata. If you moved at all, the soldiers would point their weapons at you, and they would follow you and say that if you moved, you'd be dead. By this point, it was five in the afternoon. There's a chapel in La Extranca where dead bodies and people with injuries had been taken. We could see that there were quite a lot of them. An ambulance showed up and took two bodies. There were more bodies inside. At the health clinic, there were even more bodies. There were a ton of injured people as well. Night was falling and the military didn't retreat. The people were getting tired and some went back to their homes, all of them carrying the huipalas. For context, the huipala is a flag with seven colors, which represents the different indigenous peoples of the Andes. During the presidency of Evo Morales, the huipala was declared the second official flag of the country. At that time, the huipala had become a symbol of the resistance. It was a symbol of protection and of identity. A person who walked without the huipala was basically a person who didn't agree with our identity. By then, it was more or less 7 p.m. I was already home, and I could hear the funeral procession from the center of Sencata. They had already started to mourn the bodies. We could hear these funeral processions all night long, and the next day, in the middle of the highway, they had lined up the caskets of all of the fallen, and we could tell there was a tremendous number of people. I would say that almost everyone from Sencata was there to bid farewell to those who had fallen in the massacre the day before. There were approximately eight to ten bodies, and those were just the bodies whose family members allowed for them to be shown. There are a lot of bodies that haven't had their public wakes because their families have not wanted to politicize their deaths, and so they've done private wakes instead. 
At this point, something she said contradicted information I came across in my research. I had read that the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights sent a delegation to investigate the massacre in Senkata and concluded that the death toll was nine people. So I asked Jocelyn to elaborate on why she believes that more than nine people were killed that day. I think it would be really surprising if there weren't more deaths, because you can see all the bullet holes in the houses along the highway, and rubber bullets can't do that. A lot of people have been saying that there were more deaths, but that the military is hiding the bodies. In fact, in the days after the massacre, there were people who said that their children had disappeared, that they couldn't find their spouses, that they had been on their way to work, but it seems like they got caught in the clash and they never arrived. What she's saying is heartbreaking, I thought, and immediately I wonder why the military targeted her community. I think that the regions most affected by the coup are the regions where people supported the Socialist Movement Party of President Evo Morales. Most people in the city of Sencata are Quechua and Aymara, and they belong to the Socialist Movement Party. In the time between when Eva Morales stepped down and November 19th, there was a kind of collective fear, because helicopters would fly over constantly. They would fly close to the houses, as if they were spying on them. If you met in groups, they would shoot you. Every night, we would go light bonfires on every block and create kind of a vigil. One of the high schools close by had been ransacked and the computers were taken. Supposedly, those who are doing the looting are people contracted by the coup perpetrators. We couldn't have markets in the communities because any market that went up would be looted. This has made people panic. People are also afraid because they don't know what they'll eat today and what they'll eat tomorrow, and not even the stores are up and running. The Senkata massacre and another massacre during the same period of time where at least 10 people were killed in the area of Cochabamba were preempted by a decree issued by the interim president, Janine Añez. This decree provided immunity to the military and police forces, exempting them from being investigated for human rights violations. For Jocelyn, this executive order proves that the brutality of their repression was premeditated and condoned. I asked her if she still feels the military presence in her city and whether anything has changed as a result of the coronavirus pandemic. From November to today, people in Sencata haven't gotten a break from the sirens and the tanks and the military presence. There have been rumors that the areas with high membership in Evo Morales' political party, El Mas, are being intentionally infected, and those areas have been completely devastated. You could say that the de facto government has tried to eradicate those places so that the socialist movement loses strength. But with everything that's happening, the socialist movement is gaining even more sympathizers than it had before. When we come back, we will talk about how the suffering of Jocelyn and her community is connected to U.S. foreign policy and the Organization of American States, also known as the OAS. 
You are listening to While We Were Sleeping. With us now is Jake Johnston, a senior researcher at the Center for Economic and Policy Research in Washington, D.C. He is the author of Observing the Observers, the OAS in the 2019 Bolivian elections, a report that debunks OAS allegations of fraud during the recent presidential election in Bolivia. Hi, Jake. If you could help us understand what happened in those elections last October. Yeah, it's my pleasure to be here. So October 20th uh, was the first round of the Bolivian election. Uh, you know, I think it's important context. You know, there had been a lot of criticism over Evo Morales' decision to run for another term. Uh, and it was a highly polarized atmosphere. A number of members of the opposition very prominently said that they would not respect the result of the election if, if Morales did indeed win. Hey. I'm interrupting Jake's response to provide more context. So Evo Morales was running for his fourth term as president, defying a referendum against his re-election. But ultimately, he was running legally, after a controversial ruling of the Electoral Supreme Court allowed him to bypass the constitutional term limits. Now the Constitutional Court has nullified articles in the Constitution that prevent further re-election. It also ignores a referendum that last February narrowly voted to limit the number of times a president can serve consecutive terms. Bolivia's president, Evo Morales, wants a fourth term in office. The constitution says no. And last year, voters said no, upholding term limits in a referendum. But Morales and his party won't be deterred. They've sent a challenge to the Supreme Court. And so the election was taking place in this environment. And on the evening of, of that Sunday, the Electoral Council announced preliminary results with about 84% of the votes counted. And it showed Abel Morales winning by about seven and a half percentage points. And this was just below the 10 percentage point threshold for winning in the first round. Now, after that, there was a suspension of the announcement of the preliminary results. And that system stopped reporting. The next day, when it began again, uh, it showed Abel Morales passing the 10 percentage point threshold. Which resulted in Evo Morales being re-elected as president. How was the OAS involved in what happened next? That evening, and this is where the OAS role gets really important, that evening the OAS put out a press release uh, decrying this inexplicable and drastic change in the trend of the vote from the previous day. Election Monitor reported irregularities with October's voting results. Demonstrators accuse Morales of rigging the last election and have staged multiple protests. The of American states released a report saying the October 20th vote should be annulled due to alleged irregularities. Now, it took us about 24 hours from that press release. We looked at the data ourselves and realized that actually these later counting votes were actually just coming from areas that had already shown a clear preference for Evo Morales. In other words, it was very much explainable. On June 7, 2020, the New York Times acknowledged that the OAS statistical analysis was flawed. So, while the New York Times took almost nine months to arrive at this conclusion, from what you have told us, it took your organization only 24 hours to check the data and conclude that there was no evidence of vote tampering in the results. Yeah. Yeah, I think this is a uh, you know extremely important point, right? So we were really a, a lone voice at the beginning of this in having a critique of what the OAS was saying. You know, major media in the U.S., in Bolivia, and across the world reported what the OAS was alleging as fact, 
that this was just simply true uh, without any word of skepticism or looking at the data themselves. And that was, again, we saw that perpetuated for, for months and months. And one of the reasons why that's so important, obviously, is what happened afterwards, which was on November 10th, when Evo Morales uh, was ousted in a coup. Uh, again, it was justified based on these allegations of electoral fraud and that the OAS had somehow confirmed these allegations of electoral fraud. What was the OAS response when it was revealed that their analysis was wrong? So basically, the OAS has responded to these recent reports from the New York Times and others by saying, well, the statistics are moot. That's not what determines if there's fraud or not. What we did in the report that you mentioned up top, Observing the Observers, was we took a detailed look at the rest of the allegations from the OAS. What we found was that it wasn't just the statistics that were deeply flawed from the OAS, but in fact, a number of their findings and most significant findings in their audit itself were contradicted by their own report if you looked hard enough at it. Uh, you know, something like uh, key pieces of information buried in footnotes in some of the last pages on the paper, or, you know, in the hundreds of pages of annexes, little pieces of information that directly contradict some of their conclusions. Why do you believe the OAS acted in this way? Often when, when these sorts of events occur, there's a confluence of factors, right? I mean, so when you look at the OAS role in this, You know, I, I think a key factor was that Luis Almagro, the secretary general, was running for re-election himself. In other news, the Organization of American States is preparing to choose its new secretary general for the 2020-2025 period. The permanent council of the OAS met on Wednesday to receive the candidates. The current secretary general of the Organization of American States, Luis Almagro, was elected to a new five-year term today. The 56-year-old from Uruguay received the support of 23 of the OAS's 34 active members. Uh, and his aggressive behavior and intervention in Bolivia's election was a message, a clear message to the right-wing governments in the region who he was courting in his re-election attempt. And so what we've seen is the secretary general of the OAS really sort of cozy up to Trump in the United States and to Bolsonaro in Brazil, which together provide about 70% of the OAS's regular operating budget. So you've got this personal interest. And what is the role of the United States in all of this? From the U.S. perspective, I think it's clear this policy in Latin America has been sort of hijacked by the far right policymakers with a focus on Latin America, like Marco Rubio. And so what some reporting that we've seen since from the L.A. Times reports that the U.S. rep to the OAS, Carlos Trujillo, who is an acolyte and close ally of Marco Rubio, actually had steered the OAS observation mission into determining fraud, right? So again, I think you have to look at all of those motivations and factors that went into this initial lie. Yeah, so if I have the facts right, Evo Morales resigned hours after the Bolivian military urged him to step down. And a day after the houses of his sister and important members of his party were burned down. Despite these events, there seems to be uncertainty about whether this was a coup or not. And I definitely sense your take on this, but if you can elaborate on it. You know, what we see time and again throughout history, right, are in the moment, very few people are willing to denounce what is happening as a coup or as this undemocratic transfer of power. But over time, it becomes much clearer to a wider audience what has really happened. When you look at the events over the last months, right, I think there's really no other determination than what happened being a coup. I mean, you look at the tremendous pressure and threats uh, that preceded Evo's resignation, but then also just look at the actions taken by the de facto government that resulted from Evo's departure and the steps that they've taken. And so I think you saw a similar debate in Honduras in 2009. You know, initially, 
uh, even though it was denounced widely, there was a reticence to actually calling what had happened a coup. There are legal implications for that, including preventing the U.S. support for those coup governments. And so this becomes a key issue. Now, I think 10 years after the Honduran coup, uh, it would be very difficult to find someone who would contest that that was, in fact, a coup. And, and I'd imagine that over time, it will become clearer and clearer to more people in academia and elsewhere uh, just how much of a coup this was in Bolivia. I know that after the coup in Honduras, violence in the country skyrocketed and that to this day, it remains one of the most violent places in the world. This has had multi-generational impacts on the health and well-being of Hondurans. So in your opinion, how has what happened in Bolivia affected the daily lives of the people in the country? Certainly. Well, I think, you know, what you've seen since the coup, right, is this real consolidation of a far right, you know, power base in Bolivia that has usurped power, obviously unelected. And, you know, it's no surprise that the communities that have had the worst impact from that are largely indigenous communities or areas with high support for Evo Morales and his MAS party, uh, right, which have seen targeted repression by military forces with the backing of the coup government, of course. But I think this plays into so much more, right? I mean, we've seen that this is not just a caretaker government holding elections, but they're really dismantling state institutions and changing the foreign policy of the country. And I think that has tremendous implications, not just in terms of human rights, but also basic public services. You know, obviously super important in the current environment with the pandemic, you know, issues like access to health, access to social services, access to unemployment benefits, and these things, which the illegitimacy of the current government really undermines those capacities of the state. Delving into what you have said, the IMF has approved a loan to Bolivia of $327 million requested by the current government. Can you tell us more about the loan? Yeah, it's a really good question. And I think the more fine details of that agreement are still being worked out. There's certainly been some opposition within Bolivia to uh, agreeing to this IMF loan or requesting it because of a long history of IMF conditionality, which has made sort of sovereign economic policy making much more difficult in Latin America, but across the world. I think one really uh, amazing development in Bolivia over the last decade, right, has been the independence that they have gained from institutions like the IMF by building up their own international reserves and their own buffers in order to be able to respond to these crises. Now, fortunately, I think, you know, what we've seen with the current government is much more of a return to those sort of neoliberal policies of the past that Bolivia had extricated itself from. On Thursday, election officials postponed the election until October 18th. The people are demonstrating, taking to the streets and calling for elections now because we are seeing the inability of this self-appointed president who is bankrupting the country. Young people have called on us to go on a hunger strike until the government calls elections. Originally, the interim government was expected to hold new elections in early 2020. However, they continued to postpone them despite the protests on the streets. The new date is October 18th. How do you see this process unfolding? Yeah, I think this is obviously, you know, of critical importance. Ostensibly, uh, Añez and this de facto regime that is in power today was there just as caretakers to hold new elections. Uh, obviously, that is not at all what it has turned into. I think there are real concerns, not only over the fairness of a vote whenever it happens, given the militarization of the country, the repression of political opponents, the mass politicized arrests of activists and mass leaders. So, of course, we've got a difficult, uh, challenging environment. But beyond that, I mean, I think as 
these, these actors have gained power, they're increasingly resistant to giving that power up. Sure, and with the candidate from Evo Morales' party, El Mas, leading in recent polls, there's a threat of another coup. Members of the interim government have spread the rumor that El Mas is trying to interfere with the current elections. It would be devastating for Bolivians if history repeats itself. Thank you, Jake. All right, sure thing for Jessica. This is something I thought you need to know. A recent study from Harvard Law School International Human Rights Clinic and the University Network for Human Rights determined that the month of the resignation of Evo Morales was the second deadliest month in terms of civilian death committed by state forces since Bolivia became a democracy nearly 40 years ago. Additionally, this study found that state officials, and I'm quoting here, have threatened journalists and shut down critical media outlets, arbitrarily arrested and tortured activists, and charged political opponents with vague crimes such as sedition and terrorism. You have been listening to While We Were Sleeping. This episode wouldn't be possible without the help and support of Armando Ayala, Alex D'Alessio, and Beth Gilia. A special thanks to Jocelyn Caspa, who talked to us from Bolivia. Gracias, Jocelyn. Mil gracias por compartir mi voz en otros países y gracias no, por tomarme en cuenta.